You're listening to Mockingbird. This recording was made at the 8th Annual Mockingbird Conference, held at Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. Again, not every conference has a conference magician. Jim tells me that we've got to look forward to this evening before dinner after Nadia speaks. He's going to a trick that's called the Chords of Shastri. I don't know what it is, but its name is very interesting. The Chords of Shastri. So that's happening tonight. You've got that to look forward to. It hasn't been done in 600 years. This is what you get when you come to a Mockingbird conference. Okay, well, this next speaker is... uh, Many of you might know from our website, Will McDavid, he has been working with Mockingbird in various capacities for uh, the past three years. And uh, if you, everywhere I go um, in the travels of, that where people ask me to, to go, I always get the sense that they'd rather have Will. It's like, well, what is he like? Who is this guy? Uh, because his mind is just working on a plane that uh, I'm in awe of, and I think a lot of us are, uh, and he is the last person to think that about himself, but he is uh, such a an asset and a friend, but he's also a lovely, giving, caring individual. And Will, as some of you know, is moving on to uh, law school in the fall, which is sort of ironic, law school, as he spends most of his days deconstructing law. Um, but, uh, and it, we were very, very sad to see him go, but of course he'll, be, he'll continue to be involved in a number of ways. But, you know, if you've been uh, benefited from our publications in any way uh, in the past uh, couple of years, I'm talking about... Uh, Grace and Addiction, and uh, uh, the Panopticon, and uh, Eden and Afterward, and A Mess of Help. You know, Will has actually been at the center of those things, and he's actually been not only the center of those, but a number of other books have been published where he hasn't even gotten credit. Uh, But he is just an incredible young man, and I want to publicly recognize the contribution he has made to Mockingbird by standing up and giving this young man a standing ovation, okay? Will McDavid. Come on up here, Will. Um, Does that sound good? Okay, well, I think... um, Jim McNeely has just given us the gospel in a nutshell with that magic trick. Um, Love, even though um, we are one-dimensional, like the line. Um, So I think I'm going to sort of return back to the law. Um, And I was on Wikipedia the other day and saw that a camel um, weighs about 1,400 pounds, and Jesus said that it's harder for a, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Um, this does not apply to all of us, thank God. Um, and so I never thought much about this passage, never been convicted by it. But I sort of realized that the point isn't necessarily the rich man's material wealth, but the way that self-sufficiency and feeling in control and in charge of one's own life can block our ability to recognize God's love regardless of our merit. Um, 
So I realize that it does kind of apply, and I think there's a little bit of a childhood adults thing too, like Jamin Warren in his talk beautifully looked at the contrast between the world of play and the world of work. And we adults, um, and I use that term very, very loosely, we um, have a difficult time giving up control. Um, so I'm in my mid-20s right now, and I'm just now getting old enough to sort of look back to the world of childhood and see myself as being in a slightly different place than I was then. So, you know, when Jesus says, well, if you can't enter the kingdom of heaven as a rich man, what do you have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, become like a child. That actually convicts me a lot now because I can sort of see that distance. And to illustrate, one time when I was a kid, I was about six or seven, and my family took a vacation to the Everglades, um, which is a swamp in Florida. It's a great place to go on vacation. Um, so we flew down to Naples, Florida, on Kiwi Airlines in a little turboprop plane, really tiny plane, and a huge storm hit on the way down, and our plane started just audibly shuddering. Um, it would take a sudden dip to the left, and the whole cabin would turn diagonal, and then it would pivot back to the right, and people were falling out of their seats, and the storm outside was, you could barely even hear it above the sound of the plane's body contorting and creaking like it was on the verge of being ripped apart. Um, there was a girl, maybe 15 or 16, who was flying alone for the first time and spent the entire flight sobbing on my mom's shoulder, and a vocal minority was um, screaming and shrieking every time the plane would take a dip down in the air. Um, and on this plane trip, I actually, as a six-year-old, had a blast. Um, <laughs> It was like a roller coaster, but better. I couldn't see outside, so sort of ironically, my lifelong fear of heights was it never kicked in. Um, and you know, when we landed safely at the airport, I was very disappointed that it was over. But then, um, luckily for me, my older cousin, um, Rob, found a vending machine that if you put a quarter in it, would give you a soda and your quarterback. And I had stolen about 30 drinks out of the vending machine and piling them into my suitcase before my parents had recovered enough from the ordeal, you know, to restrain me and tell me that this was not um, an okay way to use a broken vending machine. Um, but now, by contrast, I'm pretty nervous about flying because I don't like to be in situations where something personal is at stake, i.e. my life, and I have no control. And on airplanes, I mean, our lives aren't really at stake at all. They're, they're very safe. Flying is, I think studies have shown that flying is a good deal safer than driving. But lots of people get more nervous on planes because um, on the road, you're in control. And we all think that we are good at being in control. So we feel much safer in the car. Um, just like if I were to do a poll right now, the majority of people would probably say that they're above average drivers, um, which is mathematically impossible. I mean, I've been in 
I've been in two wrecks and I still think that I'm an above average driver. But we're just biased, I think, in all parts of life toward thinking that we are the best managers of anything that comes up. So we're often terrified when control is taken away. Um, so again, we would all probably think that we're above average parents, above average workers at our job. Um, if you have ever had trouble opening a can of salsa and you're at a party or something and you can't get it open and ask for help, you'll literally have everyone volunteering because everybody thinks that they're experts in um, untying really complicated knots and getting the lids off of um, salsa where the lid was screwed on too tightly. <laughs> and con control is a fine thing in certain situations. You do have to be at work on time. You do have to make yourself get out of bed on a rainy morning. And just in general, it's a good thing to try to make responsible life decisions. But when we move into spiritual territory, we find that the way that we are used to solving problems by being in control does not work. It is a problem that um, is immune to human agency. Because the one problem that we can't fix is ourselves. Rudolf Bultmann, a German theologian, once used the analogy of a man who is sinking in a swamp um, or in quicksand and is sinking down and the man's solution is to try to pull himself out by tugging upward on his own hair. Pulling really, really hard to try to get himself out of the swamp. And it's futile, of course, because the, I don't really know the physics of it. It's kind of complicated to think about why that doesn't work, but <laughs> I'll, um, I'll, I'll just say that the arm that you're using to pull is a part of the body that is sinking. The arm you're pulling with is also sinking down. And in, in Christianity, we often assume that trying our hardest to develop virtue through habits or spiritual disciplines or community service or reading the Bible or praying the right way or praying frequently, um, we think this can somehow fix our problem. Um, but just like the arm is a part of the body um, for the man sinking in quicksand, even our best efforts are still a part of us on some fundamental level. So it happens very often with Christians who do commit to trying our absolute hardest to become better people and pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, um, a similar metaphor to Boltmann's, um, is we become exhausted from the exertion of constantly pulling on this immovable thing, which is um, our character and our wills in a lot of situations. Or to sort of overdo the metaphor, um, it's kind of gross, but you know, they might like split apart or something <laughs> weird like that. Um, and yeah, definitely overdoing the metaphor, but you do see divided people, people that are the most upstanding members of the community in Sunday school and always have the right answer and have always read the latest book. Um, but then they're constantly, you know, you find out at home, they're constantly snapping at their wives, or they're putting an insane amount of pressure on their kids. Um, and 
I think this is one reason why um, burnout, this exhaustion, or this sort of need to split oneself, um, is one reason why burnout can be such a risk for um, pastors or other people in spiritual vocations, and also why a lot of people who do grow up in the most um, self-empowerment focused strains of Christianity usually end up being agnostics later in life. Um, there's one exception, and that's when they become Russian Orthodox, which happens a lot more frequently than you would think. Um, but um, in Alcoholics Anonymous terminology, and I'm sort of stealing this from uh, John Zoll's book, um, the idea of pulling yourself up has earned the label the myth of self-propulsion. And Christianity is the opposite of self-propulsion. Because for Christianity, the problem is the self, which is trying to do the propelling. And we adults, again using it loosely, are accustomed to thinking of ourselves as the actors in our world, the ones who bear the responsibility for making things turn out okay for dealing with any problems which come up. But if the problem is your temper or your workaholism or your arrogance or your um, coldness to people, the self-help model of self-propulsion cannot contribute anything to a solution. A pastor in North Carolina, to kind of keep piling on the sinking imagery here, um, has said that sin is like being stuck at the bottom of a pit and we have um, one tool down there to help us, and it is a shovel. <laughs> a machine which is fundamentally broken cannot fix itself. So in search of a solution for how we actually can, and sometimes even do, um, get better, we could try a different model from the active problem-solving do-it-yourself person. That approach can work for lots of different things, but it doesn't have um, much of a place in this particular conversation. So let's instead think for a few minutes about how things might work if we um, view ourselves as being more passive people, if we are not the actors in our world, but the ones who are acted upon. It's not the only way to see things, but it's one that we commonly neglect with um, neglect in our love affair with control. And if we see things this way, if we are those who are acted upon, suddenly our acts and choices, um, the main life applications from Sunday school or um, certain self-help books, um, can be forgotten about for a few minutes because what becomes important instead is our experience, the things which happen to us and the way the world um, comes rushing in and we process it. And we tend to sort of shut this world off a little bit. I mean, how could you not, and, and especially a place like New York City, I was here and there's so many things all competing for your attention. And after about two hours of walking along the streets and seeing ads everywhere, I just kind of completely shut off, um, but it's not particular to any place or any time, um, but the world comes rushing in. We have to have ways to deal with it. Um, 
But the most powerful emotional experiences in our lives are usually unanticipated. Um, a family member's diagnosis on the negative end, or um, an old friend who you've had a falling out with who suddenly reaches out out of the blue on the positive end. Um, and we barely even have a way of talking about these unexpected experiences because we're so used to thinking of ourselves as the drivers in our lives. The temptation of Adam was not a temptation um, toward any kind of conventional sin that you hear about um, in books or in sort of more moralistic sermons, but the, the, the temptation was you will be like God. And this is the same temptation that we battle with on a daily basis. But because we don't really have a vocabulary for thinking about more um, passive experiences, I want to borrow a word here from the field of phenomenology, um, and I'm not going to use it very precisely, so I hope anyone in the room who reads that stuff will uh, pardon me, but the word is intentionality. And intentionality in this context means the entire set of assumptions, hopes, fears, expectations, um, all often subconscious which we bring with us to our experience of the world, um, the lens through which we see things. And um, if you, for example, of how this plays out, if you receive a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning, you don't think, oh, something terrible might have happened, now I'm going to feel panicked, but before you even think about what's going on, you feel that rush of panic immediately. So again, a lot of this happens at a subconscious level. Um, because you have subconscious fears, worry over a child who's spending the night at a friend's house, um, as, a, as an example, which dictate how you experience the phone ringing. Right now I'm in the process of applying to law school, as Dave mentioned, and for the last couple of weeks I've been waiting to hear back from um, one law school. And one day, when I was especially jittery, I kept feeling phantom vibrations in my pocket, you know, even when I wasn't thinking about it. I would think the phone was ringing. Um, yeah, that's never happened in any other context. Um, but when a real call finally came, you know, I'd take my phone out, really, really excited, and it's Dave Zoll. And, yeah, unfortunately, he still even has the same area code of this particular place I was waiting to hear back from, so big letdown. Um, <laughs> and normally I would have been, you know, thrilled to talk to Dave um, as a conversationalist, but subconsciously I'd hoped for something better. Um, it, was, it was disappointing a little bit. Um, so things can either fulfill or disappoint your intentionality. Seeing... Dave's name on the caller ID was um, mismatched with my hopes. They were at odds. And again, so where we're coming from, our assumptions, hopes, fears, and expectations, or intentionality, determines our experience, often even before we think about what's happening to us. We're already experiencing it in a certain way or feeling it in a certain way. And that lens of intentionality can be different for different people or for the same 
person in different circumstances. And this intentionality, which we carry around with us everywhere, is like um, my arm and the swamp analogy, an extension of who we are. And thus it limits how we can experience the world. If I'm in a movie theater and someone behind me yells uh, fire in German, I'm not gonna have any clue how to respond. But if they yell it in English, I'm going to start frantically looking around, you know, and then if there is a fire, run, and if not, go back to watching the movie. So, what have we said? Um, first, that although initiative and responsibility help solve many problems in our lives, they don't work when we are the problem. Second, um, that any alternative to how our problem will be solved must, by definition, come from outside of us. And finally, that much of the time, the way we encounter that outside world in experience is determined by our own intentionalities, determined by our thoroughly broken selves with the wrong hopes and um, selfish fears and the wrong expectations. And again, we carry that into new experiences. So when we look for a solution to the problem, which is ourselves, we have trouble encountering some things as new. In a sense, we are too busy determining those experiences to allow them to determine us. But sometimes experiences can happen to us which lie outside of any possible expectations, and sometimes they demand that we think in a new way. They impinge upon us. They make incursions into our intention. They intrude. And sometimes they're trivial. If I'm writing a paper that's due tomorrow in the library, and someone starts playing a piano or guitar instrumental on their laptop, I can probably zone it out. But if I'm writing that same paper and someone starts playing praise and worship music over there, for instance, um, or over there, wherever. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Yeah. Um, I get really annoyed and I think I'm writing a paper. I can't, I can't deal with this right now. And if it's, it, because the, the reason I get more annoyed the second time is that the words are no longer a minor distraction that can be tuned out, wordless guitar music, but instead they present this whole world, this whole emotional state, um, this whole new way of being that is um, sort of demanding that I exit my priorities and this very important paper that I'm working on and actually hear something new. And a lot of it depends on the quality of the music. Um, if it's really bad worship music, I'll just start shooting passive-aggressive glances at the person playing it and sort of wonder why Christian music as a genre hasn't made more progress than it has. Um, but if it's really good, it will work as a call for me to enter into that world, to think about it, to feel it, which I angrily push back on because I have my own priorities. Um, so I'll push back on it maybe if it's really good and just not want to feel any of that. 
But if it's the most beautiful music I've ever heard, I'll be forced to pause in my writing and listen. What I'm doing will suddenly seem unimportant to me. Um, it doesn't just impinge on me and have me resist it, but it actually breaks through, um, through the sheer force of its beauty. Um, it is so compelling that I cannot help but change my priorities in response to it. We could call this um, a counter experience since it runs against the grain of my expectations and intentionality. It pulls me out of my world of priorities and into a new one. And I think this is often how grace does operate in real life. But um, you might think, you know, well, can't we just seek out those experiences ourselves? And we can, and they might be sort of helpful, but I would just think for a second about the experience of choosing an old song that maybe you loved 10 years ago on your iPod and selecting it and listening to it again. And, you know, whenever I do that, I'm sort of thinking, is there a better song I could have chosen? Or, you know, what else is there out there? But if I'm sitting in the car and the song comes on the radio and it happens unexpectedly, I'll be just be so excited that they are playing um, my favorite song. Um, another, as a sort of another example, Walker Percy is a Catholic um, Southern novelist, and he talks about, he said, every explorer names their island Formosa, which I think means beautiful, and there's this initial just thrill of discovery where when something, you know, when you stumble onto the Grand Canyon as an explorer, you're going to be utterly breathtaking because you've never seen anything like it in the world. And when you go as a tourist, you're just sort of comparing it to the pictures you've seen on Google Images and, um, or on postcards, and you're thinking, is this it? Am I really, like, this is awesome, but is this what it's all about? Um, you might look for like 30 minutes and then kind of wander away and grab a drink or something, but the initial explorer probably would have just sat there and stared at it for like 15 hours. Um, and so when grace does happen, um, it often, almost always comes from a blind spot, from a place where we're not anticipating something or seeking it out, but it finds us. And there's another sort of option here if we want to sort of, within this framework, try to go back to the strong human agent who manages the world. Um, we could say, well, we should just sort of repress our inclinations and our expectations and just make ourselves receptive to the new so that we actually can be changed from outside. Um, but that would be to change a sort of observational truth about human experience and to turn it into a technique, something that you can attempt to do. And Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's another German theologian, 20th century, once wrote, when a doctrine becomes a technique, there is present a self-destroying paradox intentional effort is exercised to achieve the repression of all intention, which amounts to 
a self-motivated storming of the realm of grace. So it won't work. Technique will not save us, and even a spiritual technique may amount to a little more than a fancy way to pull ourselves upward. Um, Again, sorry with overdoing the analogies, but, you know, it's like, well, this pastor said that if I just put my arm here and brace there, um, I can really get more force on it or more leverage. It's just spiritual techniques can just be a fancy way to pull ourselves up. Um, To return to the example of overhearing music in the library, there's also a lot more at work than my choice of how to respond. If the paper is really urgent or... um, I think that I'm really saying something awesome here, then I'm probably not going to respond no matter how good the music is because I am too hung up at that moment on myself and my own projects. And, you know, so it's, it's no coincidence that even a figure as beautiful and compelling as Jesus Christ could only be appreciated by fishermen tax collectors, and prostitutes. People who had their own intentionalities well-developed, who were managing their world adroitly, the Pharisees, they were the ones who were most avidly pursuing virtue and holiness. But because of that, again, I would think back to Jim Gilmore's metaphor of the glasses, because of that, they were utterly blind to the phenomenon of God in their midst. Um, As a rule, the more important my projects and hopes and fears seem to me, the more blind I'll be to anything which can actually offer me new life. And this is why Jesus said that it um, was impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because someone obsessed with pulling themselves out of the quicksand And again, this isn't a rich man. This is all of us who try to stand on our merits. Um, Someone who is trying so hard to pull ourselves up will be so focused on the exertion that we may not even notice the stranger's outstretched hand above us. Um, And the Christian music in the library, in a way it humiliates me, and I think this is why we often ignore these Um, experiences that can act on us is it humiliates me because it makes all of the effort and projects which define me suddenly look insignificant Um, and it forces me out of my comfortable context it temporarily suppresses my ego and identity I become lost in its beauty as the common expression goes and There's a reason that's a common expression, lost in its beauty, because the active, self-propelling I, which I rely on to give me meaning, is lost in an it. So we do not storm the realm of grace, but the realm of grace storms us. So to get back to the talk title, um, the experience of personal holiness looking at from what we've said about experience, um, simply doesn't make sense. To be holy means to be um, set apart. And um, give me a second. I'm going to place here. 
And yeah, so it's set apart, so I can't experience it in the familiar. I can't experience it in myself. Um, so um, to look at myself and observe an increase of sanctity or spiritual progress is also a senseless contradiction. In any truly meaningful moment of personal change, it happens when we're lost outside ourselves. True experiences of God have often been called ecstatic, and that's a word from the Greek ekstasis, which means literally to stand outside yourself. Um, so to even try to evaluate one's inner sanctity is to prove that one is still, for the moment at least, the same old, controlling, flawed, sinking-in-quicksand person. Because no one who is grabbing that outstretched hand for rescue is thinking of anything besides the hand and the person who is reaching down. The Apostle Paul writes, not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter but of spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Spirit means breath, the breath of God by which Adam, who was inanimate earth, clay, was given life in the creation story. To say that the letter kills is to recognize that any efforts predicated or based on the active um, controlling self must be doomed to failure and exhaustion. But it is the spirit, the breath of God, which blows where it will, as Jesus says in John 3, and it comes from unanticipated places. It is to say that God works through interruption, breaking into our world and repositioning all of our priorities in light of the new experience. Um, in a sense, it's not just that we are acted upon, but in being acted upon, we receive um, new selves. We are not the same person as we were when the unanticipated experience affected us. Luckily, um, we are capable of anticipating very, very little because our own horizons of effort and self-propulsion are very limited, which means that there is a correspondingly infinite field of play for the spirit's breath from unexpected places. Most of the time, our choice to respond is subconscious. And even when we're aware of an opportunity for hearing the new, we often resist it. Attempts toward personal spiritual progress will always, um, as is the case with the Pharisees, risk um, tempting us to just redouble our faith in ourselves, making us subtly but inexorably more resistant to sources of life from outside of us. We will not choose to be drawn out of ourselves um, something, again, that is very near to a contradiction. But the Spirit acts without regard for any of our petty, egoistic priorities, not even for our own receptivity. To return to the flight from hell via Kiwi Airlines, there were some people sobbing 
There were others who could barely restrain themselves from storming the cockpit and banging on the door. There were others who, um, there were, others who were um, yelling with every dip and gripping onto the seat in front of them. But then there were others, the children, who were reveling in the dips and dives. In all fairness to Kiwi Airlines, as a quick disclaimer, I feel like I have to mention that they did fly um, 8 million passengers in their seven-year history without a single incident. So in our case, in our case, the plane was going to land no matter what the reaction in the cabin was. The only thing that had any bearing on the situation was up in the cockpit. Again, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, he refers not only to the materially rich, but for anyone with too strong an ego and sense of self-sufficiency, especially the religious. When the disciples hear this, their, their response is they, they ask him, they say, then who can be saved? Because they wisely discern that even they, the poor, uneducated fishermen who are following him around, are too strongly tied to their own priorities to see the advent of something new. For mortals, it is impossible, Jesus replies, but for God, all things are possible. Um, going to close with a uh, prayer, if you don't mind joining me. Um, Lord, um, thank you for giving us help even when we do not look for it. Amen.